Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. So which one was the left or right? Looks like left. Right one. Right one, okay. So look, like... It's like super atrophied, you know. So this side. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Look at so I, can't, I can't flex, but like. Those look like uh, little, little spaghetti better? muscles now. He's got the Lou Ferrigno spaghetti muscles. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I did it like uh, six weeks ago. Tore it six weeks ago. Had surgery about a month ago. All yeah, right. they should. Uh, did they give you a time frame when they're going to let you start lifting? Probably like a three month point or something like that. So that's what they said. Although they're saying it's healing so quickly that they they'll probably have me do very light resistance very soon. Uh, I mean, again, I'm, you know, I'm good with my biomechanics and stuff. So I'm able to go, all right, so I can lift my kids like this because it's using my shoulders. Right, sure. And I know, I know how to not activate the biceps. So it's interesting, but, um, and I'm able to like, you know, have my, my protein shape right here. I'm able to lift it up. No problem. No, no pain. So good. You'll, you'll have to do like a challenge or something to see how fast you can get your, your right bicep to catch back up to your left once it's ready to go again. <laughs> That'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I don't doubt you'll get it right back. I mean, it might take you, may take you six months to get back where you were, but you'll do that's it. What, that's what a lot of my buddies. And so it's so funny because now I'm having tons of my patients who are lifters and people on Instagram are reaching out going, oh, I had that surgery. And it's like, wow, even my cousin was like, hey, I had that surgery. I'm like, wow. I didn't... <laughs> Apparently, it says it's rare in the literature, but all my lifter friends, who it's common in, relatively common, and uh, they're all coming out of the woodwork saying they had it. So it's Well, of... I mean, it's rare because that meant not that many people lift. Is a I saw I had a buddy of mine that, uh, you, know, you know, Brian Shaw, World Stars, man, he popped his several years back and I had a buddy of mine that, was in on the surgery and told me that guy's friggin' tendon was like just ridiculous. It was monstrous because normally the, all the all the tools, you know, all the implants are designed for certain size, and it's like this thing oh, customized you know. and you know kind of crazy. But so we, uh, Spencer and I were talking about him being from the Midwest, and I was Zach kind of grew up in Wisconsin. I lived up in Illinois, Indiana. You're from Michigan, so we got a bunch of Midwest. Midwest guys, but I didn't know you were in San Diego now, so that's cool. Well, I'm just up the street, man. I'm about an hour and about 90 minutes north of you. So where are to, you? I'm in uh, Orange County. So I'm in. I'm actually going to tackle a little okay. bit of the hills. So uh, I, I'll probably get down to San Diego in the near future. So I'll have to go hook up and do some yeah. training. And yeah, do some, do some heavy curls, and I'll see if I can yeah. get heavy curls right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking when when you mentioned the torn bicep, <clears throat> I, I remember years ago. I was I think I was watching an NFL football game. And they were saying that that's not as common of an injury for offensive linemen because they'll always be kind of reaching their arms out to kind of like corral a guy in and that's just a lot of bicep muscle getting used in that so you get some some guy who can run a, a four point something in the 40 and just comes right at you you have to try to pull him in with one arm like oh yeah that's coming off. <laughs> huh. you know usually what i what i've seen is you know you usually see it in, in some guys that are a little bit older and they're trying to move a piece of furniture and they have this right. rapid acceleration against a force that won't move kind of like you had somebody trying to rip your arm off during jujitsu it's just kind of yeah 
this unusual stuff that we're not used to. So interesting. Yeah. Spencer, let me, let me get into, well, cause you just remind me, cause I know, you know, you're trained in, in sort of, is it primary care? And then you did a specialty in obesity medicine. Am, am yeah, I correct? So I, I, I did uh, family medicine, graduated that program 2014, did my specialty boards in obesity medicine. I'm about to take my lip, I'm taking my lipid boards Friday. And, and then I'm actually starting another residency on Monday, preventive medicine, um, and that they're basically going to get me a, a free MPH. I really wanted to dive deep, uh, get a deeper understanding of statistics and research so I could, you know, kind of further this. I actually, a pet project of mine are the lipids within uh, the ketogenic type of sure. uh, uh, world because it's, it's just not much. We don't know much about it other than we think, you know, we can talk about that stuff, but yeah, that's no, I think we should. I saw, I saw your, your, your sort of uh, post that you wrote in, with response, I guess, Dave Feldman's work. And yeah, I know your sort your kind of stance was you're cautiously skeptical, which I think is fine. Um, or cautiously pessimistic. I can't remember how you phrase it, but I want to, I want to, you know, just before we do that stuff, I want to, cause I, I've been tweeting some silly stuff. I don't know if it's silly or not, but you know, we've got an obesity epidemic, obviously. And, you know, it's something, yeah. you know, you and I know you got your brother, Carl, who's another doc who lives. And I love that. You know, I think we get more doctors out there that, you know, it's kind of like, hey, man, I'm gonna listen to what that dude does, because at least he can figure out what it works for him. And I think, yeah. you know, I think exercise is a, a very important part for many people. Many people can't do it or are not ready to do it or not in a position. You know, you got the 60 year old woman who's on multiple meds and debilitated, you're not going to tell her to go do deadlifts. But let me ask you, because I, I, you know, I, I posited today, and I've, you know, I've said this many times in the past, that I don't think the obesity epidemic was caused by a lack of fasting or, you know, certain other things. Yeah. You know, I think it's just garbage food. But what do you think? Why do we have so many damn fat people? If I'm, and hopefully it doesn't offend people, but I mean, it's just, it's, you know, to be blunt here, we got too many people that are fat. So why, why do we have that crisis right now? What do you think is going on? Is it just an excess of calories? Is food quality matter? What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I saw, I actually saw your tweet. Uh, and I agree. It's, it's a, it's an environmental thing. You know, um, the, the phrase, uh, genetics load the gun environment pulls the trigger. That was, you know, George Bray, he's a big time, uh, obesity researcher. He kind of, uh, I think he's the one that coined that phrase when it comes to obesity, at least. So yeah, we, you, you put out, put people that have this genetic propensity into a, obesogenic environment and you know that's that's why i always laugh about like you and then the versus the vegans and it's like man you go to disney world have you been to, you're right there you're right near there you go to disney world you go to walmart or anywhere and so like in obesity uh training we, we say people with obesity we don't call them fat people so <laughs> i know you're ortho you're you're excused from that so uh, uh but you go, you go to Disney World and, and, and you say, so for you instance, people need to eat more meat and they need to eat meat. The vegans will say, or you know, plant-based, they get mad when I call them vegans because they're like, it's a way of life, it's not just a diet, whatever, uh, that's fine. But they'll say, you just need to eat plants. And it's like, well, you go to Disney World and they're just eating shit, like you said, just, just absolute shit. And, and those people, those people aren't going to follow any of those types of diets, at least at this point. So uh, I agree. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you in that it's, it's an environmental thing. These foods taste amazing. They're very low quality. They're hot, you know, easily overeaten. You know, you saw Kevin Hall's most recent study about ultra processed foods. You just, you just easily overeat these highly ultra processed foods. 
And I think that can pretty much explain it in this environment. Yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of interested about your comment on genetics because, I mean, is it an epigenetic modification in the curve? Because, I mean, I, I just don't know that there were genetically fat people 200 years ago. I mean, I, you, you just didn't see. I mean, the fattest man in the world circa 1900 was 400 pounds. I mean, this is the fattest guy in the world. And now that's friggin', you know, you see that in the grocery store every day. So, I mean, you know, and I, I can see where maybe some guy is 50 pounds overweight back in 1800s. But where do we get this morbid obesity? Is there genetics for that? Or is that just yeah. been a passed down epigenetic modification from, from three or four generations of eating garbage? So it's, it's a, it, there's a little bit of both. Um, and, and yeah, there's a generational thing with epigenetics and, and metabolic programming. Um, but so if you take those same, if we took our people from today and we put them all on an island, let's say an island where they have to hunt, fish, uh, gather, whatever, uh, there will still, they will still have the people that have the genetic propensity, propensity, they'll still have a, a higher body mass. It will than the other people. It's just now it's amplified. Does that make sense? So like those people will still have more fat than someone that doesn't have a, 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 a an obesity pre, a propensity or weight propensity. Yeah. I mean, I see there's environment and just, I mean, I mean, you know, there's people that are a certain height. I mean, there's tall people, there's short people, and, you know, they're going to relatively do that, be taller, relatively shorter. But I'm just thinking that, you know, we get people that are, that are obese to a problem to a point where it is now a, a true disease state. Whereas, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe 50 years ago, you'd be 30 pounds over, over sort of somebody else. And it's not, it's really not a huge issue. I mean, obviously there's a lot of associated diseases with obesity, a cancer, high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome. Yeah. You know, you name it, everything basically. I mean, it's it's just a marker or or even yeah. potentially causative of these these issues. Yeah. So what what is uh so I mean before we delve into the lipid stuff because I think we need to do that. But what is sort of the you know is there any current or new thinking on on obesity as you've learned that as you've done some of your studies or are we still kind of doing quite the same battle? Yeah. So it's the. The paradigm shifting in, in medicine to think of it as a disease, uh, a lot of people get mad at that because they think, well, that, that just takes the power away from the person and the responsibility. And it's like, no, you know, type 2 diabetes, we still consider it a disease. Hypertension, you know, I don't know if you consider it a disease, but heart disease, we consider disease, cardiovascular disease. It's in the name. And those are mostly caused by lifestyle. So to think of obesity as as just just because it's a lifestyle uh, situation doesn't make a disease a disease doesn't make any sense. So we're starting to change the paradigm there because it's a chronic. Whether you call it a condition or disease, it's chronic. Even if you go on a, a, a certain type of diet, whether it's ketogenic, carnivore, vegan, whatever, you have to pretty much follow that for the rest of your life, or and keep it in. We call it remission, whatever, cure it, remission. I don't really care which terminology you use but if you go back to the way you're eating before or your lifestyle before uh you're going to probably gain the weight back and and have that uh, obesity so you're going to be fighting that for the rest of your life same thing with type 2 diabetes i mean we can put it in remission reverse it whatever you want to say but if you go back to the way you're eating before you're probably going to get the type 2 diabetes and high blood sugar so the the big difference now is thinking of it more chronically starting to shift it from just uh, uh, laziness to more of like, hey, this is a disease state that requires our, our undivided attention. How important is, 
diet or nutrition relative to exercise or other factors in mitigating or, you know, keeping a healthy weight. I mean, there are people out there that will say, and we've had Ted Naiman on here and he thinks that exercise might be more important than diet selection. I mean, I am, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of exercise. I've been doing it for 40 some years and training. And, and I think it's incredibly important. I think everybody should do it, but I, I still feel that, you know, diet, you know, because, and I agree hundred percent, if I go back to eating garbage, I'll get fat. I mean, it's just, it's just, and, and so you have to think, well, maybe I shouldn't eat garbage. I mean, that's just a, a way to think about that. You know, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a cause of a, of a disease or a poison or whatever you want to call it. I know the people, it kind of gets crazy when you talk about food being poisoned, but I mean, honestly, some of this food is so good. So, so garbagey. It's like, you know, friggin' eating, eating, eating poison. And so, but how much do you think the role of exercise, because there's people saying you can't run outrun a bad diet and so on and so forth. And there's controversy about that. Where do you stand on the exercise versus nutrition? And not that neither of them are important, but where do you give the relative weight to? Yeah. For losing the weight, the, the nutrition is, far more important just simply because it's hard to get enough volume of exercise to, to overcome, you know, some of the calories. But when it comes to weight maintenance, they talk about this energy gap. It's funny. So I'll go to these obesity conferences and I, I suggest you come to one of these things sometime. It's called obesity week. Uh, you get the surgeons and the researchers, exercise physiologists and all these people and the bariatricians all together where they talk about these things. So it's funny hearing, the nutrition guys and then you got the exercise physiologists and the nutrition guys would be like it's all diet and then you get the exercise guys going whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a second exercise is very important and the biggest thing is once you lose the weight there's this energy gap your body's going to be fighting and fighting like you can't maintain a, a, a very low calorie diet or, or low calorie diet and not uh exercise i mean unless you have your appetite under control maybe a ketogenic diet like uh, Dr. Tro says, and some of these other people say, is that is the underlying issue. But exercise is extremely important for weight maintenance, simply because it's just hard to eat that few of calories and maintain it. So once you lose the weight and you exercise 200 to 300 minutes a week, you know, combination of resistance and aerobic training, usually, um, that's usually the what's required to have successful weight maintenance. So for losing the weight absolutely nutrition now losing the weight properly and having a physique that you would be proud of uh and metabolically exercise is extremely important um specifically resistance training but you know if you look at the data nutrition absolutely in the beginning weight maintenance obviously nutrition still important but the exercise becomes uh, very important just so you can increase your calories and and still maintain that weight loss Zach, I'm going to let you jump in because I've been manipulating the manipulating our guests. Time. Go ahead, Zach. No, I think it's really interesting. And I, you know, we had uh, John Anderson on the show yesterday and he was talking about like kind of where the, where the, the variances in, in workout or priorities and workout versus nutrition goes. And his, his thought was like, think of it like if you had a big pile of gravel in your driveway and you knew you had to get that pile out of the way so you could pull your car in and you had like a, like a little dump, like a dump truck and then uh, a little shovel. And the little shovel is like your exercise and the big dump truck is your nutrition. And it's like, you can get rid of that gravel through both ways, but you know, which way is going to be the best. And he's like, ultimately if you can use them both, that's the best, but the big mover is going to be getting your nutrition. And, and I think too, like from a sustainability standpoint, you, you want your nutrition dialed in because you know, what happens if you get injured or what happens if like, 
you know, you, you're not able to get in as much of the workout as you can. Uh, I think the people that struggle the most when the exercise is removed are the ones that have a, a pretty crummy diet and they're kind of masking it with, with enough exercise or something like that. And, um, it is interesting though. Uh, what do you think when it comes to like, just, uh, because the exercise component to me, I think like, you know, with, with such when you get with strength athletes, you know, you build a strong physique, you're, you're kind of working both angles in that, that muscle mass is going to be a little more, uh, metabolic and it's also gonna maybe prevent you from being able to gain as much fat as if like you were just you know really tiny or, or weak or something like that is that kind of another angle to look at it from yeah so it's it's interesting watching so people will say if you lift weights and gain muscle you're going to increase your metabolism and you won't actually lower your your that metabolic adaptation that occurs when you lose weight uh, it's not going to occur if you gain muscle but really the difference between fat and muscle is like a couple calories uh, per pound um, uh, difference. Uh, so like at resting, it's probably not that big of a deal, like the difference between fat and muscle. But if you gain muscle, lose fat, what you can then do with that muscle, you can then use it more to then while you're actually exercising and moving, you're gonna be burning more then what i think people don't discuss enough is the nutrient partitioning and i'm sure you guys have talked about this on here but you know the nutrient partitioning if you have more muscle you have more of a storage depot to put that that glucose or or other uh, nutrients to use so uh i think from yeah from a pure weight loss standpoint yeah we can we can argue that but from a physique and body composition standpoint metabolic uh, uh health standpoint that muscle is very important uh, and yep. functionality and being ortho, you would probably, you know, you, you see these frail guys and gals later in life, they didn't have enough muscle. And, uh, you know, now they have like a sarcopenic uh, obesity type of situation. Yeah, I mean, it's always fun. You know, you dig through about six inches of fat to get to a bone that crumbles. I mean, it's it's just, you know, you see that and it's, it's, it's a shame and it's avoidable. But I do think that's an important concept, the difference between weight loss and you know, body composition, because I mean, so many people are obsessed with the number on the scale. And, you know, we see people, you know, that's where we get the toffee or the thin on the outside, fat on the inside or whatever, whatever you want to call it. We see plenty yeah. of that as well. And that's, in my view, not much healthier. I mean, it may be slightly better than being, you know, 100 pounds overweight, but I mean, you still got a long ways to go. And uh, let's, let's kind of delve into uh, because there is some controversy. Well, a couple controversies. So a couple of recent studies came out. And I know you, you referenced Hall's study on the ultra processed food. And I don't think that's a surprise to anybody, quite honestly. I mean, we're yeah. being, we've been, been fed garbage for the last 50 years and it's only getting worse. But so Unwin had a study, uh, not Unwin, uh, David Ludwig had a study out of Harvard, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It talked about, you know, one year caloric, you know, maintenance mode, you know, low carb kind of, kind of did better than the the, the higher carb group. And then uh, uh, I'm sure you may have seen uh, Jeff Volick's latest thing out of Ohio State showing that metabolic parameters or, or signs of metabolic improve without uh, weight loss or caloric restriction, you know, based on, on diet, diet, dietary composition. So do you think there is a difference in macronutrients as far as how they, they impact our metabolic, either metabolic rate or metabolic health? Is there something to that or is that still kind of fringe thought or is there some is there some more acceptance of that or where, where are things at it in that regard well so yeah so for the the first study with uh ludwig so i was there when that uh study was um 
they lifted the embargo on it and it was at the obesity conference last year. And, you know, I'm good friends with, with Kevin Hall. And so we discussed it at length. And the thing is like doubly labeled water. Have you got, do you guys know how that works? I mean, it's, it's really complicated and, and there's certain assumptions about it. Lots of physics involved and I, I've never dealt with it. In fact, I, I kind of want to do some, that's why I'm doing another program. I want to learn how this doubly labeled water works. Uh, and, and so the thing is like, I have to go based on what these experts are saying. Ludwig's saying, nope, based on what we're, what we're doing and we're, we're experts on doubly labeled water, blah, 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 blah. There seems to be a metabolic advantage. When you look at what Kevin Hall and, and some of these other guys in his group work, I mean, these guys are big time experts. I mean, they're the ones that run this stuff. They're saying, no, there's a regression to the mean. There was no actual difference. I mean, regardless, it seems to be that a, a low carb diet obviously works um, very well for, for uh, fat loss. Whether there's a metabolic advantage, I, th I think that remains to be seen, but um, uh, I, I trust Kevin Hall just because he's a good friend of mine. Uh, and, and I do think he's one of the leading experts in it uh, and his group is, but like, Again, I have to go by what these guys are saying. I'm not an expert in doubly labeled water. Now, when it comes to metabolic syndrome and uh, type two diabetes, we see this in practice all the time. When you, regardless of weight loss, you see improved glycemia, right? So I think there's an advantage there and, and if you want to say it's putting a Band-Aid on a situation where it's, it's sure, it's lowering glucose uh, and it's not actually fixing the underlying insulin resistance, you can make that argument. But I would make the argument that like, hey, we're lowering glucose and, you know, that's probably better than putting people on drugs like sulfonylureas and, and insulin, I think. Although, you know, again, I think we these are cool studies that would be good to look at mortality and stuff like that down the line. But... I, I think there's an advantage. I don't know if it's improving insulin resistance, the underlying insulin resistance, but I do know in clinic, we see this improvement in glycemia regardless of weight loss. And that's, that's pretty much what they showed in that newest uh, Volex study. So, um, you know, I'm a big fan of low carb diets, especially with patients with type two diabetes and, and metabolic syndrome. One of the things that, that I had saw, you know, when I was kind of employing it in my practice was, uh, you know, a reduction in symptoms, and I was, I was typically looking at joint pain because an orthopedic guy, that's what I, and I was seeing reduction in joint pain sans weight loss or without any significant weight loss, which I had always been taught, you know, these people are too heavy and it's wearing their joints and it's all mechanical phenomenon. You, you got to get them to lose 20 pounds or 10% of their body weight or whatever we say when we yeah. see the symptoms. And, and I would see people literally two weeks back, they've lost two or three pounds and they're like, I got no joint pain anymore. So I do think there is something, you know, just getting the garbage out of your diet, and we can argue about what the garbage is, but I think most of us would argue that the ultra-processed sugary seed oil, I mean, I don't know where you fall on seed oils, but I think they're garbage mostly. But I think, let me, I'm, I'm going to make a statement, and, and I think, you know, you can tell me if you think it's true. I think, you know, whatever diet you do that sustainably gets rid of garbage, and we can debate about what the garbage is, and you can do long-term is going to be the best solution for everybody. And for me, I mean, obviously, I promote a meat-heavy diet. I think I don't think meat is a bad food. I think there's I think there's a lot of people that disagree with me, and you know. But what do you think about that general statement? Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think we could all probably agree that 
donuts, you know, you take, you take a starch, a highly processed starch, you add in sugar, and then you, you, and then you fry it. And whether that's seed oil or any type of fat in general, I think, and then you, you, you add some salt on top to make it extra tasty and make it uh, the mouth feel different. I think we can agree that those types of foods. Hyper palatable. Are, yeah, hyper palatable, very easily overeaten, are probably inflammatory in some sort of way. And, and whether that's regardless of, whether that's irrespective or whatever you want to say of calories, some people will say it's just because you're overeating the calories. I I have a feeling I'm of the proponent that food quality does probably matter further from just the macronutrient calorie and calories. You know, you got, you got people that are purely energy balanced, purely uh, calories and macros, and that's it. I do think there's probably some sort of component that maybe we can't measure just yet that does uh, pertain to the quality. So I, I think we can agree. I, I think we can agree there. Cause I mean, people aren't overeating, lentils you know you, <laughs> like that's the thing like you know the low carb the vegans versus the carnivores versus the keto guys versus whatever most people that go that are eating crap they're not overeating lentils they're not overeating uh uh you know black beans or anything like that um they're overeating the pop tart whatever type of you know yummy highly high calorie overeating easily overeaten foods. I think we're, I think we're on the same page there. I think too, like the other thing that I always think about when I see like the debates around like, you know, whether ketogenic diet has an increased metabolic effect or not. And some of it, I think is just such a kind of a silly area to be arguing about because let's just pretend for a moment, a, a strict ketogenic diet increases your resting metabolic rate by like a hundred calories. It's like, well, you know, you can just take your dog for a walk and, and burn those hundred calories. So, you know, you're, you're a fun size Snickers bar away from washing that out altogether. Um, so like, it's such a small kind of, I think to part, like there's so like you guys were touching on it basically when you started diving into like, well, how does this affect someone with type two diabetes versus a different diet approach? And I think those are the cool things to look at. Like where are the, the therapeutic uses of these type of nutrition programs for things that, you know, can't be easily mitigated by just taking your dog out for a walk or something like that. Exactly. No, I'm with you guys. And, you know, again, from, from my standpoint, I, I like meat. I, I'm, I'm biased. I'm a meathead. And you know what? I used to call myself like the Dr. Meathead, but I don't think there's any Dr. Meathead more meatheadish than Dr. Baker. Think about it. Ortho, huge guy. And then is the picture boy for an all meat diet. I, I think that's hilarious. That's awesome though. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's almost it's almost too good. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm I'm with I'm with you guys on that. For those listening on the audio version, Sean was just showing us his T-shirt. So head over to YouTube and check it out. <laughs> yeah, it's got the eat meat diet type thing. Yeah, I mean it's kind of funny. I mean I've always eaten meat, and uh, you know it's always been part of my diet, um, but. And, you know, and, and I got, you know, I'm 52 now. So, I mean, I went through, and I don't know how, how'd you, how, you, how old you are, Spencer, but I mean, you know, like I think, you know, I was a guy that, man, I just trained my ass off. I was heavy, lifting heavy, powerlifting, you know, Highland Games, track and field, you know, a strong man. Uh, I did all that crap. And I got to about 42, 43, and I was just kind of, you know, kind of, you know, the belief that I'm just going to train my ass off and I'll eat kind of what I want. 
and it wasn't junk all the time, but it was generally decent food, but I would have dessert and I would have, you know, a little bit of this and that. And man, I got to about 42, 43 and I was like, man, I'm getting freaking sleep apnea. I'm 290. Um, I'm just, you know, it's just not working and I'm still performing at a very high level, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a full surgery practice. And then I kind of figured out, man, I got to switch diets. And then eventually ended up on this crazy meat, meat only stuff, which I, you know, it's kind of funny. It, it seems to work pretty well for me and, and for a lot of people. And, and I get, and I realize it's not for everybody, but I mean, going back to the, you know, the point about does this low carb have a metabolic advantage or not? And I would say my answer is, I don't know. I mean, maybe it does, but I mean, I think the point, and I think Kevin Hall's study eloquently demonstrates this, that if you feed people crap, they're going to overeat it. And I think yeah. that you just made that point. And I mean, that, that, is so important. And if you go down to the damn grocery store, I mean, 90% of it's crap. I mean, it's just garbage. I mean, it's everything is, you know, for fine wheat, seed oil, and sugar. I mean, that's, that's 90% of our damn ingredients. And that's what we eat as Americans. And the fact that we don't sort of say, Hey, <laughs> this is a problem is, is to me is mind boggling. Instead we're trying to, you know, blame cow farts for destroying the world. And it's like, man, you got so many, you know, a sustainable environment involves healthy people. I think we need to realize that. And, you know, we can't have a bunch of sick people, and, you know, because I mean, the healthcare, I've seen stats in the healthcare industry produces 10% of our greenhouse gases. And so if you, if you shrink that sector and put you and me out of a job, which I would gladly welcome that if it would provide. Yeah, that you know, it's, that, that's another thing. People are always like, doctors just want people sick. It's like, no, I, I actually, please, let's, let's just fix it. I'll get a different job. I have no problem doing that. Put me out of a job, please. That would actually make me happy. But, you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But uh, I'm with you. I, I agree. I, I, think, uh, I think if we look at the effects, the true effect, what do you want to talk about? The effect size, whatever. Let's not major in the minors. Let's get the big rocks here. Uh, let's get, let's get, let's tackle the obesity, not these small little things that, yeah, probably matter. And if you look at the details, uh, and the cherries on top, but let's get the big rocks here. And I, I agree with you. I think let's tackle the obesity and, and, and metabolic uh, syndromes and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you address those things, I think many of these other diseases will also come with yeah. it because I, I, I do think that, I mean, I, I'm of the belief that many of the, many of the diseases we see, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, dementia, you know, you name it, anything we suffer from a chronic disease probably has the, basically the same etiology with yep. probably genetic expressions and how people, you know, express these things. But I think that's, that's a big, that's, again, that's a big piece. All right, let's transition over to some lipid stuff. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a, a hypothesis. And so yeah. this is the low carb hypothesis that I, po I posited and a lot of the guys and say, so there are people out there that have higher than what would normally be accepted LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol. And I know there's subtypes. We'll just, just for the sake of this argument say, there's people out there with high LDL that have low markers of inflammation. They have excellent glycemic control. They are lean body mass. Uh, they have, you know, no real overt signs of, of, of uh, clinical dysfunction. They have good aerobic and cardiac capacity of good muscle mass. And I would say that those people are not at unusually high risk for cardiovascular disease. And so I'd like to see your, your take on that, uh, that sort of statement. Yeah. So when you look at the, like the guidelines, so the guidelines will say that anybody with over 190 LDL cholesterol milligrams per deciliter needs to be on a statin right now. The, the thing is, the reason they say that is because they're assuming that those people have what's called familial hypercholesterolemia. Obviously, you know, the guidelines also say, if you look at whichever guidelines, you have to rule out secondary causes, but they're assuming that people over 190 
uh, they're the ones at high at high risk, and they won't they won't actually show high risk in the the risk calculators. They're assuming that these people have likely familial hypercholesterolemia. Now the thing is, I'll bring up these cases. I see these cases all the time. I'm in Dave Feldman's group. I started seeing it in 2011 when I was an intern, uh, family medicine, and I was bringing it up on the internet. People didn't believe me that these people were having familial, familial hypercholesterolemia levels of LDL. I mean, doctors, scientists, none of these people believe me. And they say, you have no evidence. And I'm like, I'm seeing it in my clinic. And they're going, they're, they're basically telling me I have no evidence. I'm like, come on, like, no, this is my evidence. And, and you know, they're saying this, that's anecdotal, the plural of anecdotes or of anecdote is not, uh, you know, data, whatever. Um, so now we're starting to see it more and more often. I, I want to publish a few case studies, uh, case series of it. And the question is, are these people who have everything else perfect? Like you said, CRP is basically zero, you know, 0 0.1, 0.2. Insulin's low, you know, A1C is a 4.8, very lean, active, you know, more exercise than, than someone uh, than anyone else, are they at a higher risk than, than say, someone similar to them, but like a relatively, you know, I don't know if you call it normal LDL, but a, a relatively normal LDL of like, say, like 100, 120. Uh, so someone with like a 200, 300 LDL. My personal um, thought is that they're probably at a higher risk, but how much of a higher risk? I, I don't know. Uh, and that's actually what I, I, I'm trying to get a study put together and we're, I'm working with Dave and we're, we're trying to figure out how we can look prospectively at somebody that has, we call it a hyper responder or he calls them lean mass uh, hyper responders. These people that go like 300 to 400 LDLs, whereas you compare it to somebody on a low carb diet, pretty much everything else equal that has a, a LDL of say 100 to 130. Are they going to have developed atherosclerosis? Quicker, I believe so, but are they actually going to die faster? I don't know. I mean, people with familial hypercholesterolemia, they've had this lifelong, we call it burden of LDL or ApoB-containing lipoproteins. They've had it since birth. So there, and, and, and then there are some other things, you know, I know David Diamond, they talk about they're at a more hypercoagulable state. They have other genetic propensity uh, uh, for um, uh, atherosclerotic uh, disease. So I don't think these people will be as high risk as them because they, they've had it all their life and there may be some other things there. But I think compared to someone with on a, everything else the same, everything else being equal, an LDL of say 100, 120, I think these people with like a 300, 400, even 500, 600 LDL I've seen, in these groups, I think those people are at a higher risk. How much more? I'm not sure, but um, uh, that's what I want to study, actually. So uh, it's it's interesting because it's nobody's really studied it. Are there are there any anecdotes in the literature that has like that follow people around that were just for whatever reason very high on that like that three, four, five hundred level living to be like you know even in well into like their 80s or 90s or anything like that? Uh, so with FH, you'll see, and this I've I've gone to these lipid conferences, and and the thing is, I don't have an actual lipid uh, uh, clinic myself. I'm all online right now, but I think that is something I want to do. Have a lipid clinic kind of online, but you'll hear them talk about like, yeah, 
some of these people just live and they don't have heart disease. Some of these 300, I don't know about homozygous. So homozygous, they see 400, 500 LDLs. I think they develop it pretty quickly, but um, you know, some of these people live nice long lives and other people develop it very early. And so, you know, what the low carb proponents will say is that those, those people that develop it, and I don't know if this has been studied, they're the ones following, you know, standard American diet. They're the ones that, uh, you know, have insulin resistance or, or metabolic dysfunction, but you, you may not see it. It may be subclinical. Like I had a patient uh, who had a, a zero CAC score, but clearly had FH because the whole family had high uh, LDL. Zero CAC score dropped dead in a couple a couple weeks later, and that's simply because they were just at high risk their whole life. But um, and I don't, they didn't have any insulin resistance that you could tell on on uh, uh, in the labs or anything like that. But um, again, these aren't people on ketogenic diets from a, a, a hyperlipidemia secondary to a ketogenic diet. It's just not been studied. There may be something protective because when you, it's not just like oh, you get high cholesterol in your blood, you get atherosclerosis automatically. There's a full process going on here. Uh, you know, the immune system, whether your macrophages are, are, are gobbling it up, uh, you know, and, and taking it in and, and, and the oxidation, glycation, all these different factors involved. So there may be something, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to the low carbers that there may be something uh, that is protective. I, I don't know though. So I, I like... I'm going to try to be a scientist and not be like, absolutely, they're at high risk. I know my, my lipid friends would, would say that, um, but I would say that, well, it hasn't been studied. I'd suggest that based on what we know, it just hasn't been studied yet. That's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, you know, like I said, maybe, you know, and I, you know, I don't know where you fall on statins. I mean, there, there's obviously a lot of people that don't like using them. They think there's, there's a lot of side effects and that's debatable. But I mean, if you, you could say like, I'm going to do this all through diet and lifestyle. And I could say, well, you know, my LDL is, and my LDL is 140. I mean, it's high, but it's not, it's not ridiculous. I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, the vegans think I'm going to die because of that, which is kind of funny. But so my, my, my LDL is 140 and I'm on obviously a very low carbohydrate diet. Now I could probably uh, get that down lower, lower if I ate low fat and, you know, ate more fiber rich diet or, you know, and not mm -hmm. ate as much fat and saturated fat. But at the same time, when that happens, I might see a concomitant rise in my, H, my triglycerides. I might see maybe a rise in, in, in inflammatory markers, perhaps. I mean, you know, it's, it's not like you push one lever and nothing else happens. And so I think you have to say, well, what is the overall systemic risk? And, you know, there's, you know, there's things like the MESA calculator. There's other cardiovascular risk calculators. We put in all these things. And my cat, my cat core was, cat score was zero as well after being ketogenic for a couple of years and on meat for a couple of years. And so that, you know, whether or not, you know, many people believe a coronary calcium scan, despite the fact you had a guy that died with a zero, it's still a very good predictor for low, you know, risk for cardiovascular disease. And so, so it's, it's an extremely good, uh, so that's, so I'm studying for the lipid board. It's, and I'm starting to dive more and more into the data and it's not, it's, it's not good if you've had FH. So you don't have FH. Yeah, um, it's not good if you're a smoker. Uh, and it's not good if you had type two diabetes, like it's, it's not that it's not good. It's just that don't, tr don't just assume because you have a zero and you have FH and you're a smoker and you have type two diabetes that you're, you're out of the woods. You still want to treat those, those people. But, uh, in someone that's otherwise 
metabolically healthy and you're, you're trying to determine whether they should go on a statin or not, and they have a zero, and especially if they're, you know, in their 50s like, like yourself, that's where it's like they're a very low risk. They don't, they don't have very many events over the next 10 years. So, uh, but do you know, I don't know if you know the differences in statistics, like there's bays and, and, and frequentists or whatever, um, but the, there's a pre-test probability. So like for the CAC score, you wanna know their pre-test probability. If you, you're, you're on the fence or you have a low risk already and then you have a zero CAC score, man, you're, you're at very low risk. Whereas somebody that's a smoker, type two diabetes, they have a zero on the CAC score. It's like, eh, I don't know whether you should trust that or not. Um, and you still want to treat them. So that's the basics of it. So like for you, zero CAC, I mean, that's amazing. The fact that you're, uh, you wouldn't, first of all, with a uh, 140 LDL, you wouldn't be treated with a statin anyway. Given, I've seen your labs, you post all your stuff all over the place, you're active. A 140 LDL, I wouldn't put you on a statin regardless. Um, uh, now, if you had a, a 190, 200 LDL, I'd probably suggest for you to start going more of a Mediterranean approach. But um, I mean, 140, you know, again, and, and like you said, the vegans will say you're going to die of a heart attack. That's not, that's not true. Like you are, again, I would say you're at higher risk than someone with an LDL of 80, but how much of a higher risk? The, 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 the difference is probably small, uh, you know, if it's there. And, and Spencer, I mean, you're not a cardiologist. And so, I mean, we have this, I guess, bias that, you know, heart disease is the only thing that matters. Now, granted, it is the major killer. I mean, it's, you know, cancer is pretty close up there, though. I mean, so we're all going to die of something at some point. I mean, no one's getting out of here alive. Wow, I mean, no that's unfortunate. Live, no one's going to live here to be 108. It may be fortunate that all of us die because some of us get kind of, we kind of get wear out our welcome after a period of time. <laughs> <laughs> Every damn hundred-year-old person I ever met was a broke, a little old lady with a broken hip that tells you don't live to be a hundred because it sucks. And so, yeah, um, you know, and I, I, you know, there's guys out there. Dave Asprey says I'm going to live to be 180, and I'm going to take all my my magic supplement pills and, and all this sort of sort of sort of kind of craziness in my view. But so, uh, you know, people just don't die of heart disease. I mean, and there's and and you know, quite honestly, if, if if I get knocked out by heart a heart attack at 90 and it's quick and painless. I'm not, I'm not too, too sad about that, quite honestly. But I mean, you know, there's people who get cancer, they, you know, they get dementia, they get, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, wasting diseases, and they, they spend 20 years suffering. And so uh, one of the thoughts and one of the concerns is we, we see, and again, granted, these are epidemiological observational studies, which I rally against all the time, I think they're not helpful. But we do see, at least from a hypothesis generating standpoint, that low LDL, particularly uh, as we get older, is a problem. And I know people talk about reverse causality, but there are studies out there showing that uh, people that have a low LDL have a 18 year old, 18 years later have a higher risk for developing cancer. And so, uh, you know, we've got this, you know, the, what is it? The P I can't, I can't remember the acronym PSCK9 inhibitors where, you know, you, get your, down to, you get your LDL down to 30 now, if you want. And I'm just wondering yeah. what is the, what is the point where we say, Hey man, <laughs> let's get yeah. well enough alone. So th those are those are concerns. So with the with the randomized controlled trials, we don't see that. But again, you know these these studies are over however many years, three, four, whatever, um, and we don't see that effect. And then you you look at the post marketing, post uh, surveillance, and you don't see it. You see it with these epidemiological things. So you brought up the reverse causality. So like, for instance, my mom, you know, rest in peace. She she passed away last August. 
she, my brother, my brother's an endocrinologist, lipid guy, doc who lifts. We saw her freaking LDL go from whatever it was, hundreds, and it was down to the 70s, you know, and it was kind of like, and you know, they, they do see, she, she had lung cancers and things like that, but she, um, uh, you know, they saw atherosclerosis in her, in her art. Every time they do a, a CT scan, they'd note, she's got atherosclerosis and she smoked and, and all this stuff. So we'd see her LDLs down. We started seeing them down. We're like, well, I guess that's good. But it also made us nervous because we know little frail old ladies that have, you know, cancers and, and malnourishment, their, their, uh, their LDLs start going down, their cholesterol start going down. So the, the way we can kind of look at that too. So we look at the RCTs, we don't see that in the PCSK9, but again, those are short term relatively. Uh, you look at these things called Mendelian randomization. I'm sure you've heard of these genetic studies to where you look at the genes that hopefully don't have anything to do with any other metabolic process in the body other than lipid control, LDL control. And it seems to be that those people with these genes that lower LDL levels that allegedly have no other metabolic process in the body that changes anything else in the body, those people seem to live long lives without a signal for uh, cancers and things like that. Um, so I, I, think they, I think it's probably fine. But again, when you look at, you, said, you talked about with diet, diet's not, it has different effects than just the genes that hopefully, there's a lot of confounding things here. So the genes that hopefully just change your lipids and not have any other changes in your body, that's different than looking at, say, diet. So for instance, you eat a lot more polyunsaturated fatty acids. Uh, you know, there's a difference between drinking corn oil versus eating nuts and eating fish. Sure, your LDL will go down, but are we increasing oxidation of those lipoproteins? Are, you know, so there's lots of different things there. So I don't think we can look at that in a, in a vacuum. So I would say that if all things else being equal and your LDLs lower, I don't think that increases your risk of cancer, but I do, uh, there's probably something there with our diet too. I mean, you could eat, you could eat a bunch of sh sugar and drink corn oil and have a low LDL, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily, if we're, if we're being myopic, myopic, whatever, um, you shouldn't look at that in a vacuum. You, those people are probably at higher risk for whatever, and we can't even measure it right now if that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. Now, I just, you know, when you come back to the Mendelian randomization, you know, genetic randomization studies, you know, and I, I, I understand the power of that and it can be a very powerful study, but then I also kind of make the question is, you know, because these people, this isn't also in a vacuum, you know, you have to say, what are these people with these genetics doing and eating at the same time? And if we sort of believe that study that show that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy by whatever metric you want to use, I mean, you've got a big population that's just in the wrong environment. And we don't know what happens if we put them in the quote unquote right environment. And we can debate about yeah. what that is, you know, you know, low garbage food, you know, I, I would say, you know, real food, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So again, I mean, I, I always look at these associations and I say, well, who does that actually apply to? You know, am I in that situation? It's like saying all Russians are alcoholics and you say, well, hell, I don't even live in Russia. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, you know, kind of this thing where, you know, we've got this, you know, the, the problem is it works for most people because most people eat crap 
and, and yeah. you say, hey, look, yeah, yeah. It, you know, most doctors say, yeah, your LDL is high. Well, odds are you eat a crappy American diet, and so I'm going to put you on a statin and tell you lower yeah. your LDL cholesterol, and that probably works. And the problem is, as you well, as you probably are realizing, and you're going more to an online practice where you have a little more control. But if you're in the normal doctor working the nine to five, every a patient every eight minutes or whatever it is, yeah, you know, miserable. It's just you just kind of you're just in a grind, and you're just like, man, I ain't got time to, to actually figure out what's going on. I got time to check a box and look at a guideline. Yeah. That's the way it works. Yeah, not to mention insurance companies are sending you letters. Why isn't this person on statin? Why isn't this person? You know, and I, again, like I get a lot of these, these patients that are, that have like a ketogenic, uh, low carb induced saturated fat, whatever you want to say, induced higher LDL. Um, and we discuss ways to lower it still within the confines of a low carbohydrate diet. So yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, the system's kind of flawed. We have a really crappy environment. Um, and yeah, it would be interesting, the hypothesis that, Hey, maybe this low carb, high meat approach is somehow protective. Uh, at the very least, though, so say you have someone with type two diabetes and had all these risk factors, and the guidelines say you got to put these people on a statin. So then you put them on a carnivore diet, and everything improves except their LDL is still, you know, whatever. We can come up with numbers, but their LDL doesn't change and it was already slightly elevated for the risk at the time. So now you have this, this, uh, this option, you have, a, you have a choice to make, like do you, do you go based on what their risk was before or now they improved everything, are they at a lower risk now? None of us really know. And I think this is where the, the new guidelines are very important. You have a shared decision-making process. So in the crappy system where you only have eight minutes per patient, you know, you just, and, and doctor, like I defend doctors all the time. There's, I feel like they're smart, but you know, I don't know. There's a lot of shitty doctors out there. And, and I think they don't even read the guidelines. And I think that they don't even, and within the system, it, it makes everything worse. So I think they're just going to push a statin on the patient and they're not even going to try to go with lifestyle or anything like that anyway. And they're not even going to listen to the patient's concerns. So I, I think if you look at the new guidelines, you're supposed to have this shared uh, patient-doctor decision-making process, and patients ultimately have autonomy, uh, regardless of what insurance companies say, uh, and pharmaceutical uh, drug reps and whatever say. So, like, if somebody says, "I don't want to go on a statin," I mean, what what are you going to do? You can't force somebody. So, I but I do think it's important uh, to have that decision-making process there and just go over. Because, I mean, if, if you look at me on Twitter, I'm a lipid guy. I, I, I'm a very big proponent of the LDL hypothesis. Some will say LDL fact, the, the lipid guys. But um, if you actually look at my patients, you'll see that I'll have long discussions with them. I'll give them all the data that, that they think. And some of them will go, yeah, it's probably best I go on a statin. And some of them go, no, I, I just don't want to do it. Not, I go, all right. I gave you the risks and whatever and what I think. But uh, you have autonomy. So I think that's, that's a system failure and also a, a doctor failure. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it. And I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too. Because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. 
Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift. Um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter, and you know, I pulled over seven hundred pounds. And I know when I use this big orange band, that uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people, and I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what the goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed. And that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. it definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like biceps curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a, uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Spencer, I, I remember this is probably about a year ago at this point, but I was listening to one of Peter Atia's podcasts and he was talking about a kind of a case study of someone he was working with that went on a, a ketogenic diet that was uh, heavy and saturated fat and like had just everything from just like their own like biometric feedback was doing great but like their ldl went way up like i, I can't remember i think it might have even been up into the high 200s or 300s or something like that and and uh i want to say they what they ended up doing is they ended up like subbing out a lot of the saturated fat for like essentially olive oils something that heavily monounsaturated and they saw that kind of come back down into some of those normal numbers. Is yeah. that kind of like if you had a patient that was in that same situation and they were looking to do lifestyle first, is that kind of the first angle you'd maybe targeted at switching saturated to monounsaturated? Yeah, that's absolutely what I do. Um, so nuts, avocado, olive oil, uh, huge effects. I mean, you'll see people cut their, cut their LDLs, LDLs in half. Now there's some people that don't have a, huge effect on, um, and you'll see it, it'll, it'll be like a 20% decrease. Some people it's, it looks like they went on a statin, basically some people it's individual response, but that's, that's basically what I do. Then beyond that, there's probably something with soluble fiber. So, uh, you could either do chia seeds or something like metamucil, like a psyllium husk. Um, and that binds up the bile acid. So like, actually people think, you know, dietary cholesterol like oh you cut out your dietary cholesterol and it's going to make a big impact but really the amount of in our in our intestines the largest cholesterol component is our, is our bile acids actually so um uh when you give soluble fiber and so like a carnivore diet or even a ketogenic diet usually doesn't have a lot of soluble fiber so i think that's a large component of it along with the saturated fat so if you give soluble fiber that also doesn't have uh, a lot of uh, carbohydrate or net carbohydrate that can turn into glucose, um, that will have an impact. So, so you go from saturated to mostly monounsaturated and then polys from not corn oil, but uh, fish and, and, and say like walnuts and, and other nuts. And then, and then adding in some sort of soluble fiber that won't kick you out of ketosis. Uh, that, that has, that's what I see in, in my, and, and these people don't need statins that I've seen. Um, now, Dave Feldman, he believes there's a, you know, obviously, I, has he been on here and talked about his energy? Uh, yeah, we've had Dave on early on, yeah. So, so he believes that there's something with the energy model. So 
and there and there actually may be. I, I don't actually disagree with that. I know some other people think that's that's some of the lipid guys think that nonsense, but but it is plausible. You know, I'm taking my lipid boards. I'm not you know the a yoda of of lipids yet. I, I'm probably a pad one still, but uh, <laughs> uh, I do think yeah, adding in maybe a little bit of carbohydrate that that probably does have some sort of component. But I I think there may be also due to insulin level. So if you read my article, I think if you increase, like if you have a very low insulin state, your LDL receptors, which are the things that take in the LDL uh, particles, uh, a low, a very low insulin state may actually decrease your LDL receptor um, activity. So if you add in a little bit of uh, more of, of carbohydrate, not even necessarily soluble fiber, that, that may also have a, a uh, a component there. And, and if you don't need to be in ketosis, um, I think that's something. But again, these are things that I, I actually do. I, I, I hope today, some, someday I have like a lab where I can study all this. And, and Dave and I have been talking about this. He's working with a few other people to look closer at that at energy model. But that's what I do in, in practice. Hey, Spencer, let me shift gears a little bit and talk about protein a little bit, because that's yeah. also a topic that is of much debate. I mean, there are people out there the, of the limit protein, keep mTOR to an absolute minimum. And then there's other people like myself and others that say, hey, man, we need protein. We need to maintain lean muscle mass. Protein's the best way to do it, coupled with the resistance training. Where do you fall on the protein is bad or we need to limit protein spectrum? And what do you do with your patients or, or yes. do you customize it? So, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a meathead like you. So... <laughs> I am biased. Like I love muscle. I've I've always been, you know, wrestling and football when I was in middle school, high school, and college. I always wanted to have as much muscle as mass as possible to optimize that as as relatively high protein. So I have a bias that I hope that this high protein hasn't uh, increased my odds of aging and 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 aging related diseases, cancers, and things like that. Um, uh, I think it can be debated, but uh, I'm I'm biased. I, I I think you can eat a higher uh, protein diet and still be healthy. Uh, and when you look at most metabolic disease now coming from obesity, it's not from a higher protein, as we already discussed. It's it's comes from a higher uh, shit uh, diet. Um, so again, I'm biased. So uh, from a scientific standpoint, there's plausibility that maybe. You know the increased mTOR, IGF one, maybe maybe accelerates a, a cancer process. I'm not going to step and say that it, it causes it, though. Again, I'm biased, though, so I hope it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, we had a good discussion on Dr. Keith, Keith Barr. He's a he's a he's a kind of longevity uh, researcher out of UC Davis, and uh, we had a nice discussion on that. And. It turns out that, you know, there are certainly animal model studies that will support lower protein diets, giving a conferring a longevity benefit and a, and a decreased cancer benefit. Um, but we also see that, you know, uh, that mTOR is expressed differentially in different tissues at different times. And so yeah. we can upregulate our mTOR with protein. And if we couple that with resistance training, that mTOR is differentially expressed in the muscle where we want it to be expressed. And we know that having muscle confers a longevity benefit. So yeah. I think, I think at the very least I could say, if you're going to eat a lot of protein, then you should probably lift. And I think that yeah. that probably works pretty well. And, and, you know, you can have an option. You can live a long time functional with decent amount of muscle mass, or you can kind of, kind of, kind of crawl through the finish line as a skinny wraith 
So you're ortho. I mean, the thing is, that that's why you have a different perspective on that. I, I'm with you. The quality of life stuff is extremely important. And I think that can get lost amongst the statistics of, you know, you, you look at the blue zones. Yeah, they, they're not, they're, they're living long. They're not eating a lot of protein, but we live in a different world now. Um, and also quality of life and, and, and having functionality as you age and age gracefully is important. So it's a balance. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I, you know, you look at these studies that keep coming out, people with a fat-free mass index that's higher tend to live longer and with less disease, uh, with less fat mass. Those, and, and I've even tweeted the other day, I'm like, I want to see what these people are eating because if I had to guess, they're probably eating a higher protein diet. And if that's the case, then these people are still living long. And do they have higher incidences of, of cancer? Um, you know, that, it's a good hypothesis. But I'm with you. I think function is very important. I saw, you know, my mom's slow decline. She, uh, you know, very frail. Uh, you know, we kept trying to get her to work out, kept trying to get her to eat more protein. But you know, that, but, and we see it all the time in practice. You see it, ortho, whatever, uh, frail, frail folks that it's like, hey, maybe a little bit more protein, a little bit more lifting would have been a good idea for them. Uh, let's not scare them into, into not doing that. Let's, let's, let's go after the big rocks of, of really crappy, easily overeaten uh, processed foods and, you know, let the other nonsense uh, uh, go by the wayside for the time being. But let me talk a little about your practice because you said you got a, a primarily online practice, which I'm sure you enjoy. I mean, it's 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 you know it's nice to be able to work kind of when you want to and how long yeah. you want to and that sort of stuff, and you can give the quality care that you probably feel the patients deserve. But what kind of strategies are you are, are you employing? I mean, I mean, just just in general. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's going to vary, but I mean, are you doing fasting? Are you doing uh, different types of diets. Um, you know, wh wh what do you, what do you typically, how do you typically deal with your patients? Yeah, I try to individualize as much as possible. So I was just on uh, Dr. Tro's podcast and we kind of went, went through, you know, he, he has a, what you call like a selection bias where people will go to him because they know he's a ketogenic guy. People will go to you because they want to do carnivore. People come to me. Uh, I'm a big individualization guy. So I'll prescribe a carnivore diet. I've done it a few times. Uh, I'll prescribe a, a plant-based diet. I'll, I'll prescribe, you know, energy. If it fits your macros, I try to fit it to the person um, as much as possible. But if I, if I wanted to do a blanket uh, type of prescription, I have, I do what's called a, a diet template. And I work with a company called Renaissance Periodization, big time uh, uh, athletic uh, physique um, athletes that in, in their company that and scientists that want to kind of get more to the general population to use their their methods and, and that's the way I do it as a diet template so like you have your protein whatever it is whether it's a dairy whether it's meat um, uh, eggs and, and that type of thing and then you have a certain amount of vegetables and then depending on your preferences and, and whatever a certain amount of starch and fat that's kind of the way I do it if, if somebody doesn't know where to go and if it's a blanket situation, uh, a blanket prescription. But I'll go anywhere in between and do all sorts of stuff um, because I have the time, uh, you know, in a normal system uh, where you have eight minutes a patient. If that, uh, you may not have that luxury.
What do you? And that's do? kind of the. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, like it. It's interesting because you know we've had uh, a few guests on that are kind of what I would call like a lifestyle first medicine approach, um, and from a variety of different backgrounds and kind of what their go to diet is, and that is uh, the message that ultimately ends up kind of summarizing their their response to that type of a question is well first things first, I have to meet the patient where they're at. Like I can't, if I put down something that's incredibly unsustainable for them in the moment, it's just going to go backwards sooner rather than later. And, and then we get nowhere. So um, I think that's like, that's almost a must with the lifestyle first approach. Yep. Absolutely. I'm with you. What do you do with, uh, do you talk to them about meal frequency or caloric intake or, or exercise? I mean, how do you, how do you broach those issues? Yeah, I try to, I try to hit all of them. Uh, it just depends. Like, so it, as we talked about before, if they're trying to lose weight, we, we hit the nutrition so hard, but one, there was this one time in the clinic, you know, I'm out of the clinic now, but this guy ate McDonald's every single day. And I tried every which way to meet them, this person where they were, they're eating like two extra large French fries a night, uh, and, and a soda. So I tried to go, let's switch it to diet soda. No, they didn't want to do that. Okay, well, can you do water? No, 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 no. All right, can you do a large fry, two large fries instead of extra large? No, 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 no. I'm like, well, what do you want? He's like, can I just have an exercise plan? I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> like we got something, but that, you know, those are, those are rare patients because usually you can, you can compromise somewhere, but at least I got that person on an exercise plan. But ideally we'd start with uh, the nutrition. And then if they're willing to, um, uh, you know, some sort of resistance. I do. I like a combination of resistance and aerobic if possible, but if they haven't done anything, you know, we start them off walking and then, uh, some sort of resistance if they're willing to, but, um, always nutrition, like if possible. What do you, what do you measure? I mean, because, you know, I, I sort of kind of come to this crazy belief that we should be measuring things like waist to height. And I think, I mean, hell, if I could get people in there deadlifting and measure how much they could damn deadlift, I would. I mean, but I mean, you know, but we're kind of limited, you know, we're, we're going to be measuring, you know, the typical blood work, the, the you know, the, the blood pressure and that sort of stuff. But do you, do you find, I know there's Canada's, Canada's got a uh, decent guide on physical performance and how, you know, you should rank people on basic things. And they've got all kinds, you know, there's the sit and go, the, you know, the step test, there's all kinds of, do you, do you, I mean, obviously online, it may be difficult to do that, but do you see any value in measuring stuff that most people don't measure. I mean, most of us as physicians, you know, we have our quick labs and, and, and that's kind of it. But yeah, I think everybody should be doing a waist circumference. You know, when you look at, if you really get into the, into the data, if they have a BMI over 35, the waist circumference, it doesn't really matter. I mean, still they're at a higher risk, no matter what the waist circumference is, but below a BMI of 35, the waist circumference is a big deal. Cause you have somebody that's a BMI of say 25, but their waist, they're holding it all in their waist and they kind of look like they're thin up top and they're holding most of their fat in their waist. They're at a higher risk for someone who has a lower waist circumference and just has a higher BMI. So I think waist circumference is, every, is something everybody should measure. And you got to teach them how to do it right. It's not just at their belly button. They have to do, you know, the iliac, feel their iliac press, go parallel to the ground um, and, and relaxed. Uh, beyond that though, like, I do do like exercise as a, uh, as a vital sign. And so, you know, I, I don't have to do like a push up, have them do a push up test, bench press. If you, you were, you're in the clinic, did you ever have people do say, can you show me a squat? I've never 
very rarely did I ever see a general population person do a squat correctly in the clinic. They always do some sort of weird knee bend thing. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have people. I would have have people actually squat and duck walk and stuff like that and help rule out yeah. meniscus pathology. But I mean, and you know, it would be, you'd be surprised how many people cannot just do a simple squat. I mean, it is yeah. like majority of the population cannot squat rare. down and stand back up. It was up. rare when they did it correctly, and if they did it correctly, is because they lifted. And if they lifted, if they're lifting, it's like they're not the people I need to be talking to anyway at the moment. So uh, I, I try to do the the basic things then. You know, when it comes to advanced markers, I do, um, I, I get into ApoB, and I don't think that's actually advanced. Some of these lipid guys will say that's probably, we should have ApoBs on everybody. Uh, and then I do HSCRP, high sensitivity, sensitivity C-reactive protein, on people that are at, you know, higher risk or want to pay the extra little bit. But beyond that, waist circumference is important. And then I just ask about exercise. Um, uh, and then I asked them about their diet. And then beyond that, you know, there was a recent study showing that people that met men that do more push-ups, you know, they're at a lower risk of diet. And that's probably because they're just working out, I, I'd imagine. But um, uh, yeah, so that's what I do. Keep it simple, but uh, more advanced than the, the standard general practitioner or family doctor. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, and I, and I, I think, you know, with waist, you know, waist to height is, is, you know, decent because I, you know, my BMI is about 30, you know, and yeah, but my waist is 35, 36, and I'm six foot five. And so it's, it's kind of in that, it's a reason um, general audience that may be listening. What would you say is, is this is how to be generally healthy? What kind of prescriptions would you give the people if you could, if you could write a prescription for diet, exercise, lifestyle, what things would you include? So if, if I'm just giving a blanket, uh, diet prescription. I, I am a big fan of, of, of making most of your diet plants, vegetables, whatever. But I also am a big proponent of lean protein, which comes from, you know, obviously either dairy or, or meat. Uh, and then beyond that, it's like for fat and, and starch. If you, I like lentils, I like legumes. Um, most people aren't going to eat those as much. So if they want, if they want fruit, that's fine. And I tell people to get their, their fat from nuts, avocados, and, and olive oil and fish. Uh, if they're getting their fat from say butter, it's, you know, a little bit, I think it's fine, but like these people that drink their butter and their, in their coffee, that's where, I, you know, I've wrote, written a few uh, case studies on, on some of the lipid markers that occur from that. And then when they stop, um, so I'm a big proponent of, of lean protein, quote unquote, uh, Mediterranean or monounsaturated healthy fats. I don't know what you want to call it, but, uh, and I do like plants, um, just filling people up and, and nutrients in general. But um, that's, a, that's kind of a general thing. But like I said, I, I, I think, you know, the, the vegans will get mad at you and, and you guys get mad at the vegans. And I think, I think the big rock to, to, that we all should attack is more of this highly processed foods. Like if people are cutting out the processed foods, I don't give a shit if they're doing vegan, if they're doing carnivore, I think there can be big time improvements with either one. Uh, but you can eat a lot of crap uh, when you do a vegan diet. So I think that's, that's part of the issue. And yeah, technically if you do a carnivore diet, you could probably eat a lot of salami and that's probably not as good as eating the, the ribeyes that you're, that I see you eating all the time. So, um, that's, you know, I, I'm pretty, I keep it pretty simple.
I think that's a solid take home message too. I mean, even when you get polar ends of the spectrum nutritionally with carnivore, the plant-based whole foods, plant-based, you know, there's still a few kind of parallel messages or parallel goals there, which is like, you know, lifestyle first medicine and, uh, you know, cleaning up some of this Franken food <laughs> that, that yeah. is just seems to be in almost everyone's diet nowadays. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't have an answer cause you know, these foods are tasty, they're cheap and people like them. They're going to go out and get them. And, you know, I'm not a, I'm kind of a libertarian. So it's, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with it. It's a legislation, but that seems to be crazy, but maybe it takes something crazy. I don't know. I don't have an answer, but I do know that I think the vegan versus carnivore thing, uh, it's kind of like, who gives a shit? Let's, let's be anti like ultra processed foods. Yeah. I mean, I, and obviously I, I antagonize vegans and, you know, I've been attacked from day one, you know, since, you know, I was on Rogan's show and I mean, it was just like, nonstop, you know, I'm the worst, I'm Satan, I'm the worst guy in the world, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm horrible, blah, blah, blah. And so I, you know, I push back a little bit at that. And I just kind of point out the silliness that they, they come up with, like, you know, humans are obviously herbivores. I'm like, you know, you guys are crazy. But um, at the same time, I think the real problem is what you said, it's these all ultra processed food companies. And again, this is a this is a capitalistic society, people are going to yeah. make money, you know, God bless people that do that. But at the same time, you know, we have to say, hey, man, uh, it can be scary when we centralize all our food and, and, and all of our food is reliably, you know, is going to be relied upon by, you know, a handful of companies that are going to tell everybody what they eat and we don't have much control in that. And so yeah. I think, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, and I don't know what it's going to take. If it's going to have to take a huge grassroots revolution of people saying, hey, we're, n- we're just not going to eat this garbage anymore. And I think this, uh, you know, we're seeing this beyond meat crap garbage processed food that people are putting out there saying, oh, it's better than meat. And I, I would wholeheartedly disagree with that. But I mean, I think it's, you know, you got to draw the line somewhere and say, hey, look, you know, yeah, we still have Coke, we still have French fries, we still have Twinkies and donuts and all that crap. And that's been there for 50 years or more. But at some point, you have to say, wait, enough's enough. And you know, I, you know, the, 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 the part of me thinks, well, the beyond meat, you know, people are already eating so much garbage, that it's probably not going to make a difference. You know, it's, it's just going to be more of the same, and no one's going to get any sicker, no one's going to, no one's going to wise up. And at the same point, I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm at the point where I realize you can't eat that anymore. You know, and maybe it's a, maybe it's an age thing. You know, when I was 20, I could, you know, you probably saying when you're 20, you know, we see guys in the NFL that are eat this garbage and they're yeah. ripped and they're great athletes. And they're like, Hey man, you know? And so people think that you, you can do that. And, you know, with, with time comes some perspective and you hate to sound like an old crotchety guy saying, Hey man, wait, wait till you're my age type of stuff. And it's true. But, I mean, it's true that, that, you know, this stuff adds up over time. That may take a decade or two, but uh, yeah, yeah. I think we got, we got to, as physicians, you know, I think it's important to push back against the way the system has it set up where it's, where it's that assembly line of medicine. And I think mm-hmm. it's also important to, to take a stance against this, you know, processed food garbage because, uh, you know, not all processing is bad, but I mean, we know what we're talking. It's like pornography. You know, when you see it, you know, junk food, when you see it, you don't have to define it. <laughs> I know people are like, Oh, don't call things junk food. It's like, okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe some patients, they get this dichotomous thinking we're good and bad, whatever that, but we know, yeah, we know what we're talking about when it comes to what is junk food. Probably shouldn't have a lot of it in our diet. Probably shouldn't have a lot of it around. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I agree. It tastes good. I mean, you know, people ask me, you know, I'm on a you know, meat-only diet and I'll have eggs and fish. And sometimes, sometimes I'll throw some spices in there and I don't worry about that too much. And they're like, what would you eat if you cheat? And I said, 
a bowl of ice cream or a piece of cake because that's what tastes good to me. I'm not, you know, like I said, I'm not going to, I'm not craving broccoli. I'm never craving broccoli, you know. And so, for me, you know, it's like if even if you can get people to eat friggin' healthy 80% of the time, I mean, yeah. that's going to have a huge impact. The problem is we have people that, you know, and you see them in your clinic, the, the people yeah. just live on garbage and they smoke yeah. and they drink too much and they don't exercise and they just eat complete garbage. And then we're trying to figure out how to, it's like trying to friggin' patch a hole in a friggin' ship that's about to hit an iceberg. You know, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? You know, it's kind of yeah. crazy. We're loading them up with medicine. So that's the other thing with like, you know, the, the, the LDL type of skeptics out there. It's like, you guys just want to put them on statins. It's like, no, I mean, ideally we would fix all their risk markers. We'd get their blood pressure down. We'd get them to stop smoking. We'd get them to lose their abdominal obesity and we'd get their blood sugars down. Um, the thing is these, a lot of these patients, they're not going to do that. So it's like, well, I guess we put you on a statin, you know what I mean? Like, so they're super high risk. They're not changing any of these things. Uh, you know, so I'm with you. I think let's get to the root cause here uh, and let's fix it. If you were the king or if you were the surgeon general or the king of medicine or whatever, the dictator, I mean, how would you, how would you design the medical? I mean, I mean, if you could say I could have all the support I wanted, I, the funding wasn't yeah. an issue because right now it's just band-aid with yeah. ancillary stats, put the band-aids on. How would you, how would you, how would you change things? Yeah. So yeah, I just saw a report about how the CEOs of these hospitals are just $15 million a year. So these people, these administrators I would give the power back to actual physicians who know what the heck is going on. Uh, I think medicine in general needs to be not for profit. I think that exploits, uh, exploits too many things here. I, you know, big pharma had too much control. Um, I think big insurance had too much control, big hospital. I think physicians need to be uh, in the lead. I, so here's, here's my ideal clinic. I, I'd say it would have to be a, it would, call it a gym clinic uh, that you know Rob Wolf and I used to talk about the gym as the primary care so think about like a CrossFit type box or whatever nice gym that has a primary care clinic attached I think we you know you're a specialist but I think I think the United States kind of uh, holds the specialists up higher than primary care and I think if we focus on primary care we somehow get physical activity uh, more intertwined with primary care, the food more intertwined. I don't know exactly, but you know, farmers markets and, and, and that included into like a primary care type of clinic um, and focus there and then start focusing on the environment. That's, that's what I would do. Give power back to the physicians, make sure they're the ones running it, not these administrators who've never treated a patient in their life. They don't, they, I used to get so pissed at these uh, quarterly business meetings where it's like, you don't, you're not treating the patients. You don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, let's get these people, instead of just running them in and out of the office and throwing them on drugs, let's, let's get these people the underlying uh, issues, the, the physical activity, the better nutrition, somehow modifying that environment for them. So that's, that's what I would do. Uh, I, I would try to get to the underlying cause instead of just patching it up. Yeah, I mean, you could have a little like a, a restaurant slash gym slash clinic, uh, you know, serve good food, have a good workout and, and, and take care of your healthcare needs. And that would be, that would be a pretty neat uh, situation. You know, I, yeah. I think that would be cool to see that. And, you know, I, you know, if you look at the uh, rate of, you know, jobs, you know, in, in healthcare, I mean, the administrative 
number of administrators has gone up something yeah. like seven, eight hundred percent in the last 20, 30 years, whereas physicians have been basically flatlined. Yeah. And so the, the, the balance of power, the balance of income has really gone to the administrators and they're making the decisions and we kind of ceded it to ourselves. And so, I mean, it's like I said, going online and doing your own practice kind of gets you out of that stuff. And I don't know if we're, I suspect we're going to see a mass or a large exodus of people starting to do that because, you know, as, as technology allows you to kind of see the patients that, you know, to the amount of time you need to dedicate to them. And I think like when I see patients just in consulting, I'm just doing kind of health uh, coaching kind of stuff. It's an hour, you know, to, to, to get to the basic issues. And I think, you know, this, this stuff, when I was, when I'm doing orthopedics, I mean, it's like, man, I was seeing three patients in 15 minutes. And yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, hi, how you doing? How's your wound look? Boom, boom, get out of yeah. here. You know, and not because I wanted to but because that's what I had to do. Yeah. It's like the hospital's like, you need to see more patients. You need to see more patients, you know, and plus, and, and on top of that, you got to document, you got to code, you got to, yeah. all that stuff's up to snuff. And so you, the patients are shortchanged by that approach for sure. And so I, I would say, you know, we've got this army of ancillary staff. We've got lab techs, we've got radiology techs, we've got CT techs, we've got nursing assistants. We've got all these people that are on the back end of the, of the disaster. And we need an army of people on the front end on the prevention side. And I think it's like, if you had people that were, prevention specialist, prevention techs, and they could go, hey, we're going to take you shopping. We're going to go to that, your house, you know, and it, w- it would probably save us money in the long run and, and probably billions upon billions of dollars in health, avoid unnecessary healthcare costs. I think we could yeah. get well, that model going. So and I think, I think too, like to go back to what you were talking about with like, if the, if we went away from brick and mortar doctors to virtual doctors, and then almost revamped the brick and mortar side of things to be a community meet a place where you have a workout, you have proper nutrition and all that stuff for folks to kind of create a routine. Like that's what, once you got people in the routine, I think it snowballs. And sometimes yeah. it's that first part that's the hardest. Yeah. So when the routine is go to the doctor a couple times a year and get their prescription, you know, that's heading the wrong direction when the routine is, okay, I'm going to go to this gym and I'm going to learn a new workout routine. I'm going to learn what proper nutrition looks like and before you know it they're doing it on their own intuitively yep lower the barrier that's the biggest thing i mean patients were so scared to go to the gym like oh my god i don't want to be near all these you know grunting people i'd go to the gym with these patients and i'd show them it's not so scary uh and yeah it can be intimidating but like people don't care like you're just doing your own thing uh so if you had a, a gym type of clinic I think if more people that are like you and you lower the barrier, you teach them that's not so hard. You don't have to necessarily lift weights or, or you know, be a meathead like, like us, but, um, you know, just getting in there and doing some sort of physical activity, getting people to move a little bit more, eat a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that would be the ideal situation. Awesome. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I got to go do a little consult here in a little bit. So, Hey, um, tell us where you can be found. Uh, and, and let me, tell me a little bit about you. You just, when did you move to San Diego, by the way? Cause I didn't realize this was a new deal for you. Yeah. Yeah. My wife's a neonatology, uh, neonatologist, a baby doctor specialist, uh, you know, after pediatrics, another three years and, um, specialty uh, so she's in the navy they sent us from bethesda over here to san diego since i'm virtual i can do whatever but i'm i'm actually starting a preventive medicine residency i'm already family medicine obesity medicine certified i'm getting a lipidology uh, specialization certification and then starting my prev med residency and getting a, a master's in public health there uh, so um yeah you can find me 
Twitter at Dr. Nadolsky. You can probably throw it up there on the, the YouTube, but it's D-R-N-A-D-O-L-S-K-Y. And same thing on, on Twitter or uh, Instagram. Uh, uh, same sc uh, uh, screen name. How long is that preventive medicine residency then? I mean, two years. So you, usually you need an internship and then you go PrevMed. So this program, is, there's like lots of family doctors that do it. So it's almost like a fellowship for me. Uh, there's even an infectious disease doctor that did this program, like lots of specialists. It's for me, it's like, I want to get into research. I want to tease out this, uh, this lipoprotein LDL uh, situation with the low carb a little bit more. And then also, I actually want to look more into some of the, um, you know, that metabolic adaptation. So I wanted to get a deeper understanding of statistics and research design uh, and get more into the public health sector to just to go into what we were just talking about. How do we, how do we, uh, how do we start battling this problem as opposed to putting band-aids on everything? So awesome stuff. Now. Yeah, that's great. So anyway, Zach, any last minute stuff or Spencer, any last minute stuff? No, I think, you know, I, th I think we have these online personas, you know, you're, you're Mr. Meat here, Dr. Meathead and whatever. But I think when you talk, you start talking, you know, I, I bet you could have some vegans. You could have Garth Davis. I know you guys get butt heads on Instagram. It's hilarious. He, he's such a good guy, but like, he's not like these other vegan, crazy vegans. He's very reasonable when you talk to him in person. I think you guys would have a good discussion. And I think we're all pretty much on the same page. Sure, we could go into like, should you eat mostly vegetables or should you eat mostly meat, whatever. But I think the big rocks, as you said, processed foods. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, we had Joel Connell. I would not be opposed with having Garth on there, although it'd be kind of good because he and I, we sometimes get a little nasty with each other. But uh, he thinks I'm an idiot and I think he's a zealot. But, you know, but anyway, it's it's kind of, you know, but I mean, I, at the end of the day, I'm sure we would agree on about 90% of the stuff. Yeah, you know, but, I think so. but obviously diet is going to be different. And we had some uh, vegan guy, Plantriotic. He's a vegan athlete that's riding across the, the United States. And I think we, oh. I think Zach and I might have convinced him to add eggs into his diet, but I'm, nice. I'm not sure man, if he ever did that stuff. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if Garth, I don't know if he listens to this, but if he is, you know, we would, I would definitely have him on, uh, you know, and I'm sure it'd be a civil debate, but uh, at the same time, yeah, you know, he's not going to convince me to go vegan. I'm not going to convince him to go carnivore, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, I, you know, I agree. The message is we got to do something against this processed garbage and we got to do something about this, you know, perceived lack of this perceived pharmaceutical deficiency. I mean, no one is suffering from a pharmaceutical deficiency. These are band-aids. They don't address the problems. You know, sometimes they're, yeah, sometimes they're helpful and life-saving. And when people come with broken femurs, yeah, you want medicine to fix it. But I mean, again, outside of that, the chronic disease stuff is, man, it's lifestyle 99%, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I think we're I think we're on the same page there. Awesome, Spencer. Well, thanks for taking some time to come on HPO. We'll link your websites and social media stuff to the show notes too, so listeners can click over and check that out. Um, but otherwise, have a great rest of the day. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing, and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. 
Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.